Hello, everyone, and welcome to this seventh podcast brought to you by the Vatican Observatory Foundation. I'm your host, Bob Tremblay. With us today is Steve Collins. Steve works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory as a deep space guidance and control engineer. Also joining us is Brother Guy Consolmagno, Director of the Vatican Observatory and President of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Steve, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, as you said, I'm an engineer at JPL. I am a guidance and control engineer, which means I'm concerned with keeping the spacecraft pointed in the right direction and doing corrections to trajectory and that sort of stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? How you, What education do you have to be able to do that? I have a bachelor's degree in theater arts and a bachelor's degree in physics. So I sort of blend those two things when I get the opportunity, mostly using the physics for doing space stuff. Is this actually proof that JPL is just putting it all on and you've got a theater person there? Yeah, I mean, I, JPL has folks that you know come from all sorts of different backgrounds there. Most of the folks that do engineering work went to some kind of engineering school, but there's a wide variety of jobs going on. So what is the day-to-day life of a JPL engineer like when you're working on spacecraft missions? It depends on what phase of the mission you're in. During development, there's a lot of analysis kind of work that I do. I mean, let me just preface by saying there's all kinds of different jobs at JPL and different people do very different things. But my work in engineering is mostly analysis work and some storytelling about choices that we've made of you know, parameters for the spacecraft design. I've been working for the last couple of years on a spacecraft that's going to go to the asteroid Psyche which Brother Guy and I can uh, chat about a little bit at some point today. But that is all about getting the spacecraft designed and built. And so a lot of that is figuring out how much propellant do we need? How much does this thing weigh? How are we going to maneuver the spacecraft to get it where it's going? And doing calculations for that. And then once we figure that stuff out, making presentations to tell the other members of the team, you know, the results of that. And if we have a design choice to make, defending the recommendation that, you know, the analysis comes up with. And then there's a different answer for if you're doing actual flight operations, which has kind of a a different feel to it than the design work. Do you actually get to play with hardware and build stuff? On rare occasions, they will let me into the clean room to stand with my hands behind my back and watch people that work with hardware every day do things, uh, you know, run a test or that sort of things. Usually I'm in the software computer side of things. You know, I sit in a lot of meetings where we talk about hardware and work on hardware problems, but you don't get to actually physically touch the hardware very much. Is it like a nine to five job? You show up at nine o'clock, the whistle blows at five and you go home? You know, might be five o'clock a.m. and nine p.m. You know, I'm a salaried employee. My mission is to get the work done. And so it's sort of on me to turn off the lights when I need to and can. But when you're doing spacecraft operations, it's very common to have shifts late at night in the wee hours of the morning. 
particularly if you're working on Mars, where, you know, the day on Mars is shifting relative to the day on Earth continuously. Yeah, um, you were talked at one point about living on Mars time. Can you kind of describe what that means to our listeners? So typically when you land a rover on Mars, for the first several months, you operate the rover on Mars time, which means you synchronize the operations with the rover waking up in the morning when it gets warm enough to operate. Usually the rover hibernates overnight because it gets very cold and you know we save all the power to run heaters and stuff. So when it starts to get warm in the morning, 10 a.m. kind of Mars time, then the actuators and the motors and stuff are warm enough and you can drive the rover. So the result of that is that it's useful for the operations team to be sort of synchronized with Mars's day and night cycle. Which is not the same as Earth. It's not the same as Earth. It's like 23 minutes, I think, longer than the Earth day. And so it is constantly shifting. You're basically coming in a little bit later every few days. And so that, you know, puts you in a state of perpetual jet lag, basically, because you're like, well, you know, breakfast was at 9 a.m. yesterday, and today it's at 10 a.m., and tomorrow it's going to be at 11 a.m. So it's sort of like a jet lag sort of a situation. Sleep in an extra hour every morning. I think that sounds great. Yes, right. <laughs> We've given you 37 extra minutes. Use them productively. So you've worked on several different missions. I've always been curious, how do you get on those missions? Are you assigned to them? Do you petition to get put on them? What's that process? It really depends on the specific situation. Sometimes, you know, you know something really exciting is coming up. And so you kind of finagle to, hey, I really would like to come work on that. You aren't necessarily free to go at any time because you've got some responsibilities that you've taken on for the project that you're on. And it's been common in my career to be on more than one thing at one time. Like I've been doing this development work on Psyche the last several years, you know, three or four years. And in the middle of that came the Perseverance Mars rover landing, which I was helping train the new operations team for. And so I sort of was working half time and more than half time during the flight of perseverance. Yeah, I have to juggle multiple things. But, you know, sometimes they come to you and say, hey, you know a lot about electric propulsion. We would like you to come work on this electric propulsion mission. And sometimes you finagle to do something interesting yourself. What was your first mission? My first mission, you know, in my whole career, I think it was DMSP which is a military weather satellite, which I did uh, launch support for, for just, you know, for a week. And then I did a few GPS. When they were originally putting up the GPS constellation, I would go out with each GPS satellite launch and, you know, work for a week or two checking out the spacecraft. And my first mission at JPL was Mars Observer, which was a spacecraft that was supposed to be a global mapping and a weather spacecraft. And it unfortunately was lost just before it arrived at Mars. So yeah, it was sad, but also like, hey, this is, you know, not easy to do. It was the first mission to Mars since Viking and was, you know, ambitious and we forgot some things and missed something. So that was a hard lesson to learn early in my career. 
how did you get into it in the first place? You know, you've got this theater background and suddenly you're working, you know, telling people how to build spacecraft. What, what's the connection from the one to the other? You know, I was interested in theater in high school and college and did lots of theater and dance. My father and actually my mother as well worked in the motion picture business in different capacities. My father was a cinematographer and my mother, you know, worked in the music industry. And I worked in high school and in college at a company that made camera mounts for helicopters and sort of got the first taste of engineering stuff there, working in the machine shop and designing little parts and that sort of stuff and working with the hardware. And I went to college studied physics. I did my undergraduate senior thesis using a Commodore 64. And for that, I taught myself machine language. And after I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to work in the space business. I found in newspaper probably back in the day, an ad for a company that was looking for somebody that knew 6502 assembler to do a piece of educational software, but they also did aerospace engineering. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. And so I got a job with this company originally to do this 6502 assembly language work and started teaching myself and doing more and more space engineering kind of work. So in other words, it was all carefully planned out. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was, it was, you know, random walk in process. I mean, it wasn't completely accidental because there's the thread of my intention to find work in the aerospace business, you know, doing technical things and, you know, where exactly, what that was exactly going to be, I didn't know. But So I became aware of you back when Deep Space One was up. You were posting regular updates to the GT, I don't even think it was a mailing list, it was a UUCP list or something like that at that time, wasn't it? This is a, that a was... gang of, of science fiction fans that uh, we all happen to belong to and know each other. Yeah. You would now call that blogging. I don't think we had that word back in the day, but I started writing these regular updates about what was going on with the project. And, hey, we did this today. And, oh, my gosh, the spacecraft just went into safe mode. I wonder how it will come out. And it was pretty fun. Originally, I started sending it as email messages and then learned how to write HTML well enough that I could just post the things directly onto a website right at the dawn of the web and did it that way so I could include pictures and things once in a while. One of the fascinating things following your career about this is that all the missions you've worked on as an engineer are missions that friends of mine have worked on as a scientist. So, you know, my good buddy Dan Britt was one of the mission scientists on Deep Space One. Tell us about what happened when one of the cameras went bad on Deep Space One, which is a mission to try to use electric propulsion to eventually go to a comet. Yeah, Deep Space One was a technology demonstration mission that was to teach ourselves how to use electric propulsion. Turns out electric propulsion is super useful for a wide class of planetary missions because you can take a small spacecraft and fly it way out in the solar system. Takes a while to get there, but you can do things that you would have to have a giant Saturn V size rocket to do without electric propulsion because electric propulsion is much more efficient of propellant. So on this was a technology demonstration mission. We sold it primarily as that, 
but it did have a science component to it. There was a science team and we were going to try to fly by some asteroids and comets and take pictures. And, you know, there was an infrared spectrometer to, you know, study the surface of the bodies and so forth. So we successfully made one flyby or almost successfully made one flyby of an asteroid and then retargeted the spacecraft to go to a comet. And shortly after we did that, the star camera on the spacecraft failed. The star camera is used to figure out what the orientation of the spacecraft is and is crucial both for us using the electric propulsion system, doing science, you have to have it. On most spacecraft, there are two, and if one of them craps out, you can use the other one. But on Deep Space One, because it was this technology demonstration mission, there was just a single camera. So what we ended up doing was we spent several months trying to make the star camera work again and eventually decided it was really failed. And we figured out that we could use the science camera, which is a narrow angle little thing, to point at a star and take pictures of the star. And so we sent some people off to go develop some new software that would take those star pictures and basically replace the job that the star camera was doing for figuring out our orientation. And the end result of that was we were able to, you know, use the electric propulsion system again. We basically picked a star that we wanted to thrust in the direction of, and we would thrust in it for a week or two. And then we would, you know, move over to a star a little ways away and thrust in that direction for a while. And, uh, we could fly the spacecraft that way. And we were able to successfully fly it to an encounter with a comet nucleus. We had to pick a new comet nucleus target and we got high resolution pictures of the comet nucleus, the best pictures at the time of a comet nucleus. And after we were able to do that, we went on and did a second target. So an amazingly rewarding uh, mission because it was so challenging. It sounds like something out of science fiction. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was. There was an episode of Star Trek pretty much every week. <laughs> you worked on Deep Impact, too. That, that is a, um, a mission that is near and dear to my heart. I talk about it every time I do my presentation about asteroids. Could you tell our audience a little bit about that mission? Deep Impact was a mission to go and try and study the surface of a comet by basically launching a missile at the comet as we fly by, hitting the comet with this little uh, payload, this self-tracking payload, and taking pictures of what happened as a result. And we were able to successfully do that. It was also a very challenging mission. The launch ended up being delayed. And so we basically took a year out of the flight. So where before we had a year and a half to figure out how to fly the spacecraft and make sure everything was working, I think it was just six or eight months or something from launch to the comet impact. So we had to do everything on the double to get ready. But we hit the thing and proved a bunch of new technology in the course of doing that. Some technology, by the way, that came from uh, DS1. Yeah, I want to get back to this, you know, Deep Impact makes you think of the movie and this science fictional thread, because I think a lot of us got into this business as kids from reading science fiction. And it all sounded very exciting when it was an adventure in somebody else's book. But in some ways, you're living it. Are you a science fiction fan? Are there any books that you think do a decent job of describing what real spaceflight actually feels like? 
you know, I was trying to think of if there were books that did a particularly good job of technical accuracy. And I think there's a conflict between the storytelling aspect and some of the realities of space missions. I mean, things in some ways happen a lot slower in real outer space than you would tolerate in a book, you know. We launched the spacecraft and it took us nine months to develop enough Delta V to reach our target. And we mostly just got up every morning and tried to get another meter per second of Delta V. So in that way, it's a little bit hard, but the Martian was you know, very good. I know that Andy Weir, I've seen lectures by him, and he worked very hard to have that be technically accurate with only a few exceptions for story arc purposes. You're talking about, you know, technically accurate. What about emotionally accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think there are some that are closer to that. And there are also lots of stories from other genres, I think, that do that. I mean, I have spent a lot of time in the last several years reading Patrick O'Brien, which is historical novels about the age of sail, the uh, Napoleonic era. He was the guy who wrote Master and Commander? Yes, that's right. And there's a shelf full of Master and Commander novels. And they feel a lot like, you know, operating on a ship in the Age of Sail was a lot like operating a spacecraft these days. You know, you have a chain of command and you have adventures that come along and you have hardware that breaks that you have to tie the ropes back together on and yeah, make do with what's on the boat because you can't go back and, and pick up a new one. That's right. That's right. One other name drop I want to do that I've read recently was Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cowell. She has a series of books called the Lady Astronaut series that is an alternate history of the space program that feels pretty close to the truth in a lot of ways, better than the truth in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I like those books too. And, you know, of course, historically reaching back, the original Star Trek was super influential for me. You know, the combination of that and the Apollo program. One aspect that I wanted to mention about science fiction is that a lot of working on spacecraft, operating them, and also doing design work on spacecraft is about imagination and being able to visualize in your mind what the spacecraft is doing when you send a certain set of commands or imagining in your mind, how is the spacecraft going to work? If you design it in this way, how are the different parts of it going to work together? And science fiction builds the muscles to do that kind of imagination, I think. So that has been a toolkit that I've used a lot in my career, being able to imagine how is the spacecraft working? And one of the astounding things that happened on the Perseverance mission is the amazing video footage that we had of the EDL sequence of us actually landing. And it was shocking to those of us that worked on the project, I think, because we had all spent lots of time imagining how the EDL sequence worked. You EDL know, meaning standing for? The entry, descent, and landing. I'm talking about the video of us actually touching down, setting the rover down on the surface with the sky crane. 
we've done simulations of that and we've imagined it in our heads and we've even made animations of how things were going to work. But seeing actual video, high-res video of it actually happening is shocking because there's all kinds of detail in that that weren't in our minds as we imagined it. Because when you do the engineering work, you're sort of imagining a platonic ideal of how the spacecraft works. And, you know, the little bits of insulation flying around and the loose strings flapping in the breeze are usually something that you ignore because they're not important to the engineering design, but they exist in real life. One more thought on that is the same sort of thing I think happens scientifically, right? You as a scientist know that you're flying to a place on Mars and it has a certain history that the scientists that have worked on Mars before have laid out. But then when you see actual high-res pictures of the actual place and look at it with knowledge of geology and that sort of stuff, it is a much richer tapestry of information. I mean, pause for a moment to allow our stations to identify themselves. I gotta ask you, do any of you guys know about or play Kerbal Space Program? I only know about it from you. I've never Have you ever heard of it, Steve? Oh, it's yeah. A- because I've landed something on Mars all the way down and, you know, entry, descent and landing. And, and when I saw that heat shield fall away, I'm like, I've seen that. That's really cool. <laughs> right. And we, in a lot of ways, are doing the same thing. I mean, we have a Kerbal Space Program version of the Mars landing stuff. It's a very detailed simulation. And we spent years figuring out what things have to be super accurate and what things can be sort of vague and approximate. And they run thousands of cases, you know, thousands of full runs and look at the statistics of how many of them successfully landed to try and tune our parameters and stuff. So that's all very familiar. It almost for me personally, it feels like, well, I do that at work. So question for you, the uh, lander for Curiosity and Perseverance is about the size of a VW. It's not small. I can only see these things getting larger. What's the next step? Are there any talk about landing something larger? Yes. I mean, they're figuring out how to do that, right? The airbag landing solution that was used on Spirit and Opportunity, we outgrew it, sort of. We couldn't build a Curiosity-sized rover and use the airbags or we weren't smart enough then to do it. There's a little room to grow with a sky crane architecture landing. We could probably sky crane things that are twice as big, twice or three times as big. At some point, that will become challenging. There's larger landers. Probably the touchdown part isn't the limiting thing. It's more the parachute technology and Mars is particularly challenging because it has enough atmosphere that you have to deal with it, but not enough atmosphere to really just use parachutes alone. Like you can do on Earth, you can pretty much parachute things. You can do a supersonic reentry and then a parachute and get all the way to the ground. You can't really do that on Mars. So are you going to be working on any of the upcoming Venus missions? I don't know. They were just selected. It's possible that I could. I feel like I'm sort of committed to this mission to Psyche for the next couple of years, at least. I'm not sure whether I will actually do operations on it all the way out to the asteroid. But yeah, just a brief detour on the Psyche mission, since I've spent so many hours on it. 
Psyche, the asteroid Psyche, we've confusingly named the spacecraft the same thing as the asteroid, at least for now. And so it's a little confusing. But the asteroid Psyche has a very strange radar albedo. It looks, if you hit it with a radar, it looks very bright. And one possibility of the interpretation of that, and Brother Guy, you can probably elaborate on this more and much more deeply than I, is that the surface of it is highly metallic, like it's made of iron. And we've tried to figure out how could an asteroid be like made of iron? And one possibility is that it is the core of a planet that formed early in the solar system evolution. And that core, you know, got run into by things. And most of the mantle, the dirt part, got stripped off of the outside, leaving the mostly just iron and sulfur core. And the takeaway is that the asteroid psyche is weird somehow. It's one of the bigger asteroids in the asteroid belt. And so it's worthy of a mission to go figure out what's up with that. How was it formed? What can it teach us? Yeah, the other side of it is there are other indications that argue against it being metallic. Uh, The most obvious being that it only has about half the density of iron. Mm -hmm. And there are other features in the way it reflects light that are not totally consistent with iron. It makes you think there has to be at least something else besides iron there. But nobody has been able to be satisfied themselves as to exactly what it is. My favorite thought, and this goes back to spacecraft construction days. I got this from my old advisor, John Lewis, who just turned 80 this year. And I still think of him as a young man. But uh, he pointed out that they learned with spacecraft in the 60s that if you have bits of bare metal inside the spacecraft where there's no air, they stick to each other because without a thin layer of oxide, the metal actually will do what's called cold welding. What if you had one of these cores that was shattered and then the pieces fell back together? As soon as the pieces stuck, they wouldn't move any further and you'd wind up with uh, you know, a big Brillo pad in space. A metal rubble pile. A metal rubble pile. What we know so far is not inconsistent with that possibility. Yeah. One of the things that you do when you, Brother Guy knows this, when you design a space mission like this, is you build a thing called the science traceability matrix, which is sort of a detailed description of the scientific question that you're trying to ask. And a plan for trying to answer it by making certain measurements with certain instruments. And Psyche's is particularly interesting and complicated because it has a bunch of branches for the different possibilities for what the asteroid might be. And we've tried to select a set of science instruments for it, a magnetometer, a neutron gamma ray spectrometer, a camera, that let us, you know, choose which of the branches of this thing are true and false so that we can come to some conclusion about what's the thing made of? How did it get that way? The magnetometer would tell you how much it deflects the sun's magnetic field, whether it's metallic or not. So that would be a real, you know, solid instrument. The other one allows you to detect the presence of certain elements that are typical for rocky materials. So by determining the uh, the way that they absorb neutrons, or, or they that tells you whether or not you've got this kind of rock there rather than something metallic. And so those are obvious choices to make. Got to be challenging because you really don't know ahead of time what you're going to get. That's right. We don't we don't know very much about the shape of it. I mean, the challenges on my side of the thing are we have a rough shape model of it, but uh, we don't really know what the gravity field is like. We can't really design the orbits that we're going to use until we get there. 
we don't know how bright the surface is actually going to be because, you know, there's lots of questions that have to be answered once we get there. And so we have to design for a big space of options. Feels nice for a chance, you know, rather than just, oh, yeah, we're going to go prove what we thought we always knew, which is a very dangerous thing to do. This this sounds like a really fun mission. And my guess is that it's close to work that you've done because you've done a lot of work with, with meteorites. Yeah, and, and I know Minnie Wadwa. She was actually a teacher at our uh, 2016 summer school here at the Vatican. Oh, excellent. That's a wrap for this podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Steve Collins and Brother Guy Council Manio. You can follow Steve on Twitter as Longhaired NASA Guy. I'm Bob Trembley. You can read posts from Brother Guy and me and listen to our other podcasts on the website of the Vatican Observatory. Clear skies, everyone.